Today, I am with John and Linda Brownlee of CountryHomesteadLiving.com to uncover the number one thing you need to know before you purchase that dream homestead. So many of you are actively manifesting with me on Facebook and have the perfect homestead pictured in your mind, but do you know what to look for to make sure you can actually farm that land or sell your products and not jump into a dead deal that will leave you broke and heartbroken? My next guest uncovers it all for us. All the things you would have never even thought of. Welcome to Manifest Your Homestead, the podcast where farmers in waiting work toward building the sustainable lives they dream of. No matter how big or small your current patch of earth is, we work together through manifesting and business building ideas that get you going on the road to the homestead of your dreams. But we're not just dreaming, hoping, and wishing here. No, we're taking action right now. And we're working on our daily manifestation practice, knowing that our corner of heaven is already out there waiting for us. We just need to step into our dusty overalls and become the rightful stewards of our land. If the vision of having your ideal homestead dances around your head while you practice your canning, quilting, or soap making skills, then you are in the right place. We welcome you to our society of hopeful homesteaders as we turn our waiting room into our classroom and stockpile the skills, knowledge, and practice we need to be successful on the homestead. Hey, hey, it's Liz. Thank you so much for joining in today. I'm so appreciative of the time we spend together on this show and hope that you find what you need here. And if you're looking for something specific, let me know. Just email me at liz at homesteadwomanmag.com. And remember, that's Liz with two Zs at homesteadwomanmag.com. When the time comes for you to actually purchase the homestead of your dreams, you want to have the confidence to know that you are making the right decisions and looking for the things that will add to your success, not stifle it before you even get started. Am I right? John Brownlee is a retired attorney in Idaho who educates hopeful homesteaders like you on the ins and outs, the pitfalls, and the sweet deals to be had when seeking out your ideal homesteading property. Their website, countryhomesteadliving.com, is a wealth of historical, statistical, and entertaining information you can just dive right into and find anything you might be looking for. So if you spend your nights swiping through websites looking for your dream homestead, stay with us because our guests are going to give you key things to look out for when looking for that sweet home on the range. All right. So welcome, John and Linda. Thank you so much for making some time today to speak with us. I'd love to dive in deep with you today, uh, specifically around the pitfalls of exploring the purchase of your first farm and actually maybe going through with uh, making an offer, making a purchase. Um, Our audience today that's listening is mostly hopeful homesteaders that uh, probably spend countless hours on realtor.com or on, you know, farm flip or, you know, just daydreaming of the time when we can go out there and see our homestead and put an offer on it. But I know from what I've read from both of you, it's not that easy, right? Not exactly, no. So take us through what the top pitfalls might be. What's the number one thing we should do or keep in mind as we're scrolling through all those beautiful homestead properties online? What what should we really be thinking about? First of all, the number one issue in homestead property 
is having an adequate source of water. Without an adequate source of water on the land, the land is actually worth zero dollars as a homestead. And this means there needs to be a source of water on the land currently before it's purchased that you know is adequate. And so that can be more of an issue with unimproved land than with land that's already had a farm or a home on it. And you need enough water for all of your needs. And if you're going to finance the property, most of the time it requires a well that has at least five gallons a minute flow rate to be able to be financed. But five gallons a minute flow rate may not be a sufficient flow rate if you're watering a garden, if you're washing clothes, if you're using a dishwasher to clean the breakfast dishes, and at the same time, your automatic watering system for your stock is working. That could take more than a five gallon a minute flow rate. So how do we, what's the question that we should ask when we pick up the phone and do that first kind of exploratory phone call with say a realtor or an owner? What is the question that we should ask around water? The first question should be, can you verify the gallons per minute flow rate of the well? And that's usually done with what's called a well log. And particularly in the western part of the United States, most states require the well drillers to file a well log after a certain period of time, which is usually around the mid-1980s. Any well drilled after that would have a well log. And that would tell not only the flow rate of the well, but how deep the well had to be drilled to reach water. All right, so let's assume that we pass the water check, right? We know if we don't realize, you know, water is life. And although your plot of land may be perfect, the location that you want might be perfect. It might be a beautiful old house with great bones, no water, no deal, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. No water is just not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if, if we pass the water, uh, you know, we check that box, we're good to go. What's the next thing that we should look out for? The next thing that you should look out for as far as a homestead would be what type of soil is on the property. Because if you don't have good soil and you want to have a garden or an orchard or a berry bushes or even a pasture that has healthy grass growing in it for your stock to eat, you need to know that there's good soil. And besides that, if you're somebody who wants to be on the organic side of things, you want to know if the soil in a previous farm had pesticides or chemical fertilizers used on it. So that's another thing to look at is probably the second hurdle to cross. Mm, that's a good one. I, I hadn't even thought about previous usage. So I'm sure most people don't think about that one. No, and uh, depending on how much chemical fertilizers or pesticides were used on the previous gardens and pastures, 
it could be up to 10 years before those that ground would test pretty much herbicide and chemical free. Hmm. So that's an important thing. And one of the issues with that is most people who would be selling that land already know that some of the potential buyers may be wanting to know about former herbicide, pesticide, and chemical fertilizer use. And so they're going to be trying to sidestep that issue. So that's something that can require an on-site visit. And as you're looking through the different building on the property, you look for containers or bags that are partially full of chemical fertilizers or containers that are pesticides or herbicides and you keep your eyes open looking for those things because that's usually the best way you'll have that question answered. It's very smart. So now does this also pertain to just household grade? That's going to depend on exactly what it is. And that's sort of an issue that comes into with how you controlled pests in the house itself. And a lot of people who are looking for homestead want to control household pests as natural as possible or with as safe a chemical agent as possible. And that's something that we do address on the website. And that's something that uh, I had some training in a few years ago. That's interesting because if you're shopping around for a homestead with a long-term goal that you're going to make it into a business, which most people think about that in the long term, and you're thinking about, well, you know, I want to be certified organic and, you know, that's going to be part of my, my marketing messaging or my positioning this is huge. I mean, you don't want to find the perfect yeah. property with great water resource, get in there and have, you know, the inspectors say, wait a minute, <laughs> no go. And there goes your entire business plan. Exactly. Exactly. Now, yes. one of the things that can be done, Liz, is first of all, don't ever offer on property without a thorough on-site visit. And during that on-site visit, look for evidences of the use of uh, chemical fertilizers and so forth. But then in the contract, if this turns out to be the property you want to purchase, have a clause in the contract that the water and the soil in the garden area, in an orchard area, in an area where there may be uh, blackberries or raspberries or blueberries growing and in the pasture has to be tested for the presence of chemical fertilizers and pesticides. And you have to approve those test results or the deal is off and you get all of the money you have put into the deal refunded to you and the seller keeps the property to sell to someone else. My gosh, John, already I'm, think, I'm seeing that, that quite dangerous to get into this dream of a homestead without an expert on your side because we've been in this call 10 minutes and you've already opened our eyes to two quite obvious things that we should be looking out for, but nobody talks about. And that's one of the reasons that we did our website, yes. Country Homestead Living, was to bring some of these things out in the open for people to look at. Yes. 
Yeah. I love your website, by the way. I spend a lot of time on that site because it truly is like a niche library for homesteaders. My, my particularly favorite piece of yours was the history of homesteading. I love that piece. And uh, it kind of sparked me to reach out to you. And then after the fact, I saw your course and I thought, oh my gosh, how perfect is this? A lot of the website credit goes to Linda. I'm just the writer and the researcher. She she has that talent, that artistic talent and so forth that's lacking in me. It's, it's a wonderful place to hang out for the day. I'll tell you that, Linda. Thank you. <laughs> so we've passed the um, the organic test at this point. We're moving right along toward our dream. What, what's the third thing we should look out for? Probably going to be, depending on where the property is, either you need a good presence of trees or you need to be sure that the septic system, which virtually 100% of rural properties have, is in good order. Trees are important for shade, for windbreak, for privacy, and a lot of homesteads either heat with wood during the wintertime or supplement heat with wood during the wintertime. So trees on the property are important, and it's a good idea to have a variety of trees. If you live in an area like we do that's mountainous, the majority of the trees on our homestead are conifers, trees with needles, but we have more than one species. We have fir, uh, we have tamarack, and we have pine trees. And that's much better than if all we had, for example, was pine trees. And in some areas, you could have conifers and deciduous trees, trees with leaves. And that's good because if you live in a rural area, the leaves, when they fall off of those trees, are a good addition to a compost pile to help keep your garden nutrients up. And, and to use as um, compost to mulch, mulch the garden. So in the trees area, that's important. Now in the septic system area, what's important there is particularly if you're looking to homestead small acreage, like one to three acres, for example, because you want to be sure the septic system is in good working order and you want to know exactly where the septic tank and the field lines are because you wouldn't want to plant over the, the field lines in case the roots of the plants would come down and mess up the field lines themselves and cause a septic problem. And it's always a good idea sure there's enough room that if in the future the septic system was to mess up to where it needed to be replaced, that you would have the room to replace the septic system without having to move part of your orchard or part of your garden. Those two, the septic system and the trees, are kind of a little bit equal as the third hurdle to reach. Some people would look at the septic system, other people would look at the trees as the third hurdle. Now, where does city ordinances and homesteading laws come into play? Have you found that that can kind of rear its ugly head as well? There is a homestead movement for suburbia. 
And in that case, it's the ordinances that cover uh, the city and county ordinances that cover that suburban area. For example, a lot of those ordinances would not allow you to grow garden produce in your front yard. It would have to be grown in the backyard. And some of them may limit what kind of animals you could have. There are some ordinances in suburbia that say you can have chickens as long as you don't have a rooster because the neighbors would complain when the rooster starts crowing at 5.30 in the morning. Uh, In the country, it's a lot easier because the zoning is usually something such as rural, and it would be in, say, a minimum of five-acre plots or 10-acre plots or 20-acre plots. And people who live in the country usually don't pay the attention to the way a homestead looks if they happen to drive by it and can see it from the road like people in the city or suburbs would worry about how their surrounding neighborhood look. And the easiest thing to do is when you're in an area and you're looking at uh, homestead property is to either place a call to the County Planning and Zoning Commission or stop by the County Planning and Zoning Commission and just sit down and say, I'm thinking about buying, say, a 10-acre piece of property in your county that I want to have a homestead on. What kind of laws and regulations would I have to abide by? And they'll probably ask you what part of the county it is you're looking in to get an idea because the zoning regulations are different for the different parts of the county. There's a uh, story, a sweet little story on your website about, uh, in this vein, about avoiding pitfalls. And there was something, an anecdote specifically in there about don't drive up to your dream homestead in your red pickup truck or your red sports (laughs) car. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And that is actually a true story. It is. Uh, And the gentleman came from, and uh, I'll mention the, uh, I'll mention the state. He came from Southern California. We live in Northern Idaho. And he did not do any website research like you mentioned earlier, Liz, which is the proper way to start your search. It's not to call a realtor up and say, I want to look at country property. Mm -hmm. And the reason for, one of the reasons for using the website search is to get an idea of what the property prices are in the area of the country you're looking at and realize those prices are asking price, not selling price. And depending on the market conditions in the part of the country, the selling price can be 15 to 20% less than the asking price. So this gentleman came from Southern California to North Idaho And he looked at some property and he drove up in his new red pickup truck with the big California license plate on the front of it. And the realtor says, aha. And he said, uh, you know, how much is, is this property? I really like it. And he was told that the property was $20,000 an acre. And he thought that was a steal. So he bought it. 
And I had looked at that same property a couple of months before. And as an Idaho resident, I had been quoted $10,000 an acre for that property. And it wasn't property that in researching it was property I wanted, but because he came up and he wore his wealth on his sleeve, he paid double what he should have paid for that property. Yeah, it seems so something again so obvious you know when we go car shopping you know what what do they first say like don't act excited (laughs) (laughs) yeah obvious (laughs) and we don't even think about it because a lot of especially you know with the new homestead movement a lot of city slickers right are going out there and these are you know folks that have worked in the corporate industry for decades and their negotiation skills and they're slick and smooth and they're going out to these rural properties and thinking that they can lay that on somebody and it's actually hurting them. A country realtor can is slick or slicker than any city realtor <laughs> that you'll ever run into. <laughs> Let's hit on that for a moment. Um, you know, we talked about the person that scrolls through realtor.com or, you know, a like site and finds a property that's openly advertised. What about if we know we want to be in an area, you know, I don't know, Alabama, Arkansas, in a a rural area, we don't necessarily have a property in mind. And we also know that many properties aren't even advertised. How do we go about that conversation and and even looking for those properties? There's probably two main ways of doing it, and I'll address them separately. The first way Uh, There are a lot of properties actually in different areas of the country that are listed on Craigslist that are not listed by a realtor. And so you go on Craigslist and you type in the city in the state or the county in the state, and then you look for the real estate listings. We have close friends who bought their homestead about 50 miles of where we live in North Idaho, and they found theirs on Craigslist, and it was not listed by a realtor, and they were able to negotiate directly with the owner, and they developed a good relationship, and that made the negotiation and the purchase much easier because their ideas for the property matched the owner's ideas for the property, but he was old enough that he did not feel that he had the ability to do that with the property. So he was willing to negotiate and give them an exceptionally good deal on that property because they shared the same dream for the land. What are some other creative ways of coming to the negotiation table with an owner? There's two types of real estate agents. There's the regular real estate agent who works for a company who lists property and they can sell any property that their company lists or that's listed on a multiple listing service. Those realtors are legally the employees of the seller and those realtors have what's called a fiduciary duty, which is a duty of the highest level of loyalty to the seller. And part of that duty is to get the highest possible price out of that land for the seller. And also the higher price they get, the higher their commission is because it's a percentage of it. There's another type of realtor that's called a buyer's agent. 
And that realtor works for the buyer, not the seller. And they have the fiduciary duty to get the best possible deal for the buyer, which means they can use their skills to negotiate the price downward for the buyer. And because they're a realtor in most states, once the deal is made, they get paid out of the sales price, but their duty is to the buyer, which is a duty to get the lowest possible sales price in the best terms, rather than to get the highest possible sales price for the seller. Mm -hmm. So that's one way of doing it. There's a caveat to beware of, and that is some states allow dual agents. Mm -hmm. In other words, the agent can say, well, you know, if you want a buyer's agent, I can be a buyer's agent. But if he works for a real estate company that has the slick color brochures and all of the pictures of the different lands for sale on the windows of their real estate office, the way I feel that realtor should be dealt with if he is going to be your realtor, a buyer's realtor, is you tell him up front, okay, I will, I will let you work for me, but I will not look at any property that's listed by the realty company that your office is in because that puts the realtor between a rock and a hard place. His company that pays him wants him to get the highest price but you want him to get the lowest price, so you need to take that off of the table and only have him show you properties listed by other realty companies. Have you seen other creative um, agreements that happen between an owner and a buyer? Let's say they allow them to stay on the land or they allow them to rent out the land, anything that might be... Um, creative for a young buyer coming on board that doesn't necessarily have a whole ton of money to throw at it that might want a creative solution to work with the owner on? Yes, there there is a way and there is probably more than one way. But the best way that I know of is to look for land for sale by owner. And in a lot of places, there are little local newspapers uh, that you can get uh, from the grocery store, or the hardware store, in a rack by the front door that will also list real estate for sale. And a lot of the real estate will be by realtors, but there will be some in there that is for sale by owner. And you can go and talk to the owner and develop a relationship with the owner, ask the owner to show you over the property, tell you about it, ask questions that you have about the property, and that gives you the opportunity to evaluate the honesty of the property owner, gives him the opportunity to evaluate the honesty and integrity of you as a buyer. And that's important when you don't have a lot of money, because you want to develop a trusting relationship on both sides. And then you can tell the owner how you would want to go about using the property 
ask them what they think about it. And that helps develop a little more of a relationship. And you work towards an owner financing situation. But one of them is to try to work toward making the situation where there are protections for both the seller and the buyer. And that means a lot of times you would go to, for example, a title insurance company, which is in many states is where most of real estate closings, sales are done. If there's not a title insurance company, you would want to find a good country attorney who does a lot of real estate closings as part of the practice and have them draw up the agreement between the buyer and the seller so that they avoid the usual situation, which is called a contract for sale or a contract for deed, which does not protect the buyer. And you put in there the the protections such as uh, the payments due on the first of the month, but it's not past due until the fifth. And if something happens, they you have to miss three payments before they can start foreclosure and things like that. In the normal situation of signing a contract for deed or a land sale contract, all of those protections for the buyer are not in there. And so that's one thing you would want to watch for. And that's why you want to ahead of time develop the good relationship with the seller of the land and get a good feel for their integrity and let them get a good feel for your integrity. And that's usually the way it works out the best in the long run. Now, John, do you do you still assist folks um, in that process? We're uh, we're operating our own homestead. We took a a turn at assisting folks in that process, and we quickly learned that you can get overwhelmed in a in a very short period of time. So that was part of the impetus for designing the website the way it was designed so people can read the different articles and get good ideas. And that was also the impetus behind the Country Homestead Buyers course. So people could go through the course and there is a mechanism for those who purchase the Country Homestead Buyers course that when they they have questions, to be able to contact and ask questions. Just from the sense of what I do and the, the, the resurgence of homesteading since the pandemic, um, I have to imagine that it's a resource that's greatly desired and quite helpful. Um, just, you know, like I said, in, in our last 30 minutes of this call, um, and you giving us surface level information has been incredibly powerful. So we, we talked about the pitfalls of a bad deal and check those boxes off. What could make up a good deal? So I, I know it takes a lot of exploring to decide if it's a good deal, but at first glance, what would you say, you know, we, we've got the water, we may or may not know about the, um, the use of uh, chemical fertilizers, but at first thought, what would you say are some 
high points on what might a good deal look like. Let me tell you a story of a piece of property Linda and I looked at a few years ago. And it was a piece of property that was off grid. It was up in the mountains. It was all, It had uh, a lot of level land. There was no garden on it, but to look at the soil, the soil looked like it was good soil. It was dark color. Uh, it had nice grass growing on it. There was a, a nice little cabin. There was a fence. It had a well on it. We, at that point in time, had not been able to determine the well's output in gallons per minute. But it was a very nice-looking little place. It had a large building on it that was kind of a combination shop and a uh, garage. And while we were there looking at the property, we noticed three or four cars driving by within about 50 feet of the side of the shop that was away from the cabin. Mm. And... In looking at it, one of the things we wanted was a place that had good water, and at least this one had water. It had what looked like good soil. There was plenty of room uh, if the septic system was to go bad to put in a second septic system. There was a beautiful view out to the east across the valley and mountains. And I can remember Linda standing at the fence and just looking out at that view when I first noticed the cars going by that close to the shop. And I asked the realtor and he says, oh, there are three families that live past this property and they have a deeded legal access to drive across this property to get to their property and where they were driving would have put them between their drive between the house and the shop and where you would have put a garden and an orchard and so forth. And we decided that we wanted the privacy that would uh, that was not on that particular property, although there were a lot of good things to the property. So on that basis, we made the decision not to pursue that property any further. So that shows the uh, validity of an on-site. Now, if you're in a mountainous area, uh, such as uh, around uh, the Great Smoky Mountains in North Georgia, East Tennessee, et cetera, and I'm, I was born and raised in Tennessee, <laughs> uh, or if you're out west in a mountainous area like where we live, it's a good idea to visit the property two different times a year mm. because you want to see what the property looks like in the, in the summer and you want to see what the property looks like in the winter because in a mountainous area, that's real important because you want to know how easy it is to access and get off of the property in the wintertime. And in the Western U.S., uh, if there's uh, a pond, springs, creek, some kind of stream on the property or bordering the property, you want to see what that looks like uh, end of August, first part of September, which is the driest time of the year, and that gives you the ability to determine 
uh, whether there is sufficient water for your needs during the driest time of the year. So looking at the property more than once is a great way to find out whether that property is completely suitable for you. Yeah, no, I think what, you know, what I'm hearing you say is there are many aspects to a good deal, but without actually standing on that property, you should not be making any of those decisions uh, without seeing for yourself, you know, talking to the owner, looking at the neighborhood or the area um, to kind of make that, make that diagnosis, so to speak. We had a neighbor who was a retired high school teacher, and he came from California, and he went on the web, and he found a property. It had a little pond on it. He liked that, and he emailed the realtor, and he said, are there any problems with this property? And the realtor replied, in their email, not that I'm aware of. And so he sent an offer at almost full price. The offer was accepted. He paid for the property, sight unseen. The first time he saw the property was when he was moving in. And he was still happy with what he saw. But what was missed, there was water taken from an adjoining property to fill the little pond. And there was no permission to take that water. And there had been a previous lawsuit against the previous owner of that property for illegally taking water off of someone else's property. And if he'd done an on-site visit, he would have seen the two-inch diameter black plastic pipe coming out of one end of the little pond and running off the side of the property. And if he'd have followed it to the source, he would have found that the end of it was in a creek coming down out of a mountain behind that. And he would have discovered that it was not on the property he was going to buy. And that would have given him the opportunity to found out if there was a legal right to take that water, which there wasn't. And that ruined his enjoyment of that property because he bought it sight unseen. Mm. You bring up a great point. It was actually part of my list of questions. Um, if if there is a creek, a natural creek or river, let's say, on the property or running through the property, do you have um, ownership rights to that portion? That depends on three different things, Liz. It depends on whether you live relative, uh, essentially east of the Mississippi River. If that's the case, the answer more than likely is yes. If you live west of the Mississippi River, there are two different water rights doctrines. Mm. One of them is the California Doctrine, and the other one is the Colorado Doctrine. The California Doctrine will tell you that you have rights to the the property if your taking water does not deprive a prior appropriator of water. And what that means is, 
uh, when the, the areas of the country were settled that later became states that adhere to the California doctrine, uh, the western part of the U.S. is more arid than east of the Mississippi River. So water rights is the most important and the most litigated area of property ownership in the West. And so if somebody started using water from that, say, say it's a, a large year-round creek, and somebody started using water from it to water stock, and you come in and the creek runs across your property before their property, you can take water out of that creek as long as you don't deprive them of the water they have been used to getting. Hmm. If you deprive them, then they have an action in law against you. Even though you have rights to the water, your rights are secondary to theirs. They're only yeah. secondary because we came in last or second? That's correct. Got it. And it, it, it comes in the order of how the water was used because having less water in the western part of the country to settle the area the people who settled it first and used got the right to use the water first before later settlers. Mm. And in the Colorado doctrine, if there's a stream running across your property, you don't necessarily have any right to the water unless it's shown that the water you take from it won't affect somebody else who has been taking water from it before you came along or before that parcel of land was first settled. And so they're very similar doctrines. Uh, and that's why checking water rights is important because if there's a, a year where there's a relative drought, even if you, quote, have rights and you take water, but if you deprive a prior appropriator, somebody on land that the water was used on before you do, that kind of messes up your rights because their rights are before yours. Mm -hmm. And so uh, water rights is, is very important to look at in the western part of the country. Take, for example, uh, the area around uh, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in North Carolina and Tennessee. One of the reasons it's called the Great Smoky Mountains is because of the mist rising off of the mountains due to the rainfall. <laughs> it follows the English, more the English common law idea of water rights, which is you have the rights to the water that's on top of your land and the water that's below your land and there are times that there can be conflicts between water rights uh, in the eastern part of the U.S., but it's much less because there's a higher rainfall in the eastern part of the U.S., and after you cross the Mississippi River and, get, and at least get west of uh, Missouri and Arkansas, then the amount of rainfall starts dropping off. And so the water rights become more crucial. 
it's always a good idea just to check out the water rights, which east of the Mississippi River are called riparian rights. Mm. And riparian's old English word for water rights. Uh, and that's something that very rarely comes up. In fact, when I grew up in Tennessee, I used to help my grandfather. I can remember very few times that he had to water his garden and he always had good produce because of the rainfall. We're in North Idaho. We water our garden every other day unless there's been a recent rain, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So there's that kind of a difference between it. You can ask a realtor in the East, in the West, I would not ask a realtor because most realtors know that that is a critical area in the West and some realtors, not all of them, but some realtors might be tempted if they don't think you're a very savvy real estate purchaser to give you the answer you want so they can make a sale and commission. And once the sale is over and they're paid their commission, they're out of it and you can't go back and expect them to help you. So it's actually better to ask that to either the attorney who's doing the closing or the title company if the state where you're purchasing land uses a title company to do the closing is to get their opinion of the water rights. Got it. Now, is there a difference between uh, an attorney, a real estate attorney and a, a attorney specific to say farming or homestead? Is there a difference we should be looking for? Well, in the West, and that's where uh, that's where we've lived for the last 15 years and where we saw the need for the website and the course and so forth. And uh, as full disclosure, I'm a retired attorney. So everything I'm saying is not legal advice. It's educational advice because when you're retired, you technically cannot give legal advice because you're no longer licensed to do so. Most attorneys who do a general practice of law who live in a small town in the rural west have a large portion of their general practice of law deals with real estate and so if you step into a lawyer's office uh, and you want to ask him a question one thing you can do is say uh you know, how much of your practice deals in real estate and you have a fair chance of them saying something like, you know, half of my practice or a third of my practice deals in real estate. That's a general indication that you can ask them the questions. If they're dealing in homestead law, that's dealing in real estate law. Uh, homestead law would just be a very small subset of general rural real estate law. Now, I have um, a, a couple final questions. What is your personal opinion about buying in times like the current pandemic that we're in? Good question, Liz. There needs to be a, a, a little bit of an understanding of what drives real estate prices. So with this pandemic, and interestingly enough, I was also a healthcare provider as well as an attorney. So that's something that I keep uh, tabs on. Mm -hmm. You have people in the city or in the suburbs who are wanting to move to the country 
<clears throat> so as they put their price, their land on the market, there's going to be a glut of land for sale in the cities and the suburbs, and there's not going to be enough people wanting to buy that land to sustain the asking price. So a point in time is going to be reached, and that would be the, the proverbial critical mass whenever that would happen in a given area where the prices to sell the real estate in the suburbs in the city has to come down to make a sale. Mm-hmm. Then they're going to go to the country and the realtors in the country, because they make their money off of a percentage of the sales price, the prices in the country are going to be real high. And at a point in time is going to come in the country where the money that the folks from the city and the suburbs have will not buy the country property and the country property prices are going to have to come down. And those two critical mass points are probably going to happen at different times. It'll hit critical mass in the cities before it hits critical mass in the countries. And so that's where being an educated buyer and being able to look at the property on site, know which is the better properties and know how to negotiate the price of the property. And the negotiation is a part of our uh, country homestead buyers course will give the best opportunity of getting good country property at a price you can afford during this pandemic in the aftermath of it. So if I'm hearing you right, John, is it your opinion that we have not reached that sweet spot yet in the market? Part of that opinion would probably would probably have to delve into politics, and we shouldn't mix <laughs> politics and homesteading and real estate. And so I will I will tell you that the general feeling in the rural West is a lot more on the conservative side than the liberal side, and I'll leave the politics at that, okay? Okay, that's a deal. (laughs) So uh, going back to that that article on where I first met you and Linda, uh, the history of homesteading. I'm curious, is there still free land to be had? The only place that I know of where you can get rural property under something similar to a Homestead Act is in uh, the Yukon Territories of Alaska, and you have to be an Alaska resident to do that. There are some cities uh, in mid-America, in the Midwest, uh, in, uh, in Nebraska, for example, that will allow people to have a lot in the city and the lots are of varying sizes. And if I remember correctly, the last one is maybe half an acre in size, Uh, but they have to build a house on it. They have to live on it, et cetera. And these are usually in uh, cities in mid America where there is a declining population 
And so they are desperate to get people to move in and live there uh, to have the tax base to keep up the different uh, utilities that the city's responsible for keeping up. So the, the short answer is, as far as the Homestead Act of 1862, where you could get free rural property, if you lived on it for five years, you built a fence, you planted a garden, you put a road in, and you put a building on it that was 10 by 16. And interestingly enough, in 1862 Homestead Act, it didn't say 10 by 16 feet. So there was a lot of property that was 10 beer bottles by 16 beer bottles, and that actually passed the Homestead Act. But that kind of property is no more. (laughs) Uh Yeah, 10 by 16 coconuts, huh? (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Linda and John, I'm sure you have um, other things on on your day-to-day, and I could talk to you both all day. Uh, I just love all of the ins and outs of uh, real estate, and of course, homestead laws. Um, So I want to appreciate this time from the bottom of my heart that you were able to spend with our listeners on this because it's invaluable information. You know that, and now we know that. Um, Definitely not something, if if we're pouring our heart and soul and money and resources into this dream, start off right, find an expert, take the course, um, do it right so that when you finally get there, you can breathe a sigh of relief and it all be roses and and rainbows from there. Yes. Yes. And uh, there can't be any better advice than to start out and do it right from the start. Yeah. Yes. John, remind us where we can find you, where we can take the course. Uh, You can find us on the website, www.countryhomesteadliving.com. And I would invite everyone listening to go there, click on the section about the course. There will be a video loading. That video talks about what you need to know before buying country property. And the subtitle is specific about Uh, three things that you need to know before you ever try to deal with country realtors so that you don't end up inadvertently giving the realtor the information they need to hold you out for the highest dollar value they can possibly wring out of you for a piece of property. Well, John, thank you again so much. Linda, thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, We hope to hear from you soon, and we'll be following those great stories on your website. Okay, you folks have a great day. Wasn't that good? I could talk to John all day long about this stuff, and I'm so excited to share that if you too want to have more of John's insights, you can drink it all in in a few ways. John's online course, the Country Homestead Buyers course, is the ultimate guide to finding and purchasing your country home. And it's available right now on their website alongside a free one hour video workshop that walks you through how to deal with country realtors. So valuable. You can also follow John and Linda as contributing writers for Homestead Woman Magazine, where they educate hopeful homesteaders down the path to acquiring their dream homestead. 
So go subscribe now at homesteadwomanmag.com and find us on Instagram at Homestead Woman Magazine where you can meet, learn, and share with all our other contributors. So thanks for listening in today and we'll see you next week at Manifest Your Homestead Podcast.